On this episode of Wavemaker Conversations, it's the Ted Kennedy Sessions. And people sort of listened to each other and they took the action on that. That is non-existent today. 95% of that thing is done by staff. And people come, as I call, parachuting into the Senate on Tuesdays, yes. listen to the lunch discussion, go back to their office and uh, see people because they're so far behind. They're out the door for fundraisers every night, Tuesday, Wednesday. They want to be out of there Thursday night. We don't have serious votes on Friday. If we have a vote, it's 9.30 in the morning with no debate. You lose the whole kind of essence about what the Senate is, about your involvement in it, your relationship with people, and what the purpose is, which is the exchange of ideas. From 2005 to 2007, before he was diagnosed with brain cancer, Senator Ted Kennedy sat down for 19 in-depth interviews, an oral history project released just this past week, conducted by the Miller Center at the University of Virginia, where Ted Kennedy graduated from law school. Welcome to Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. I'm Michael Shoulder. I'll get to the Kennedy sessions in a couple of minutes, but first, I was hoping to address the latest mass shooting, the massacre in Roseburg, Oregon, in a constructive way. I was struggling until last night when I stumbled upon a Facebook post from a friend of mine who shared a short, personal, moving story. Here is what he wrote. My dad was a young man and hit a rough patch. He went to a pawn shop to buy a gun to shoot himself. Back then, there was a five-day wait period for such purchases. That was a time when America recognized a gun purchase in cash in a pawn shop was most likely not for a good reason. My friend continues, I, for one, am thankful that law was in place. Most have been scrapped since, because I would never have been born. My dad worked through his issues. He was suffering pain in the moment. He never returned to the pawn shop. Instead, he lived a productive life and helped mentor thousands of kids over the years. That's my friend's post. And so a young man lived and thrived because he was forced to pause. I quickly emailed that Facebook post to one of the world's most esteemed mediators, my friend William Urey, who is co-author of the classic book on negotiation, Getting to Yes, and the most recent, Getting to Yes with Yourself and Other Worthy Opponents. I asked Bill Urey to send me his reaction, and here it is. It's high time for us to reframe the way we Americans talk about gun violence. We can all agree we want to reduce it. The question is how. If we can shift from ideologically charged arguments pro and con to a public health conversation based on scientific evidence, we can surely come up with creative approaches that are acceptable to the vast majority of Americans. Surely one of these approaches is to use the power of the pause to enable individuals who are moved momentarily by rage and self-destructive impulses to think again about their choices. The power of the pause. This is Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. In a moment, the Ted Kennedy Sessions. With Domino's new Piece of the Pie rewards, you earn a free medium two-topping pizza after just six online orders of $10 or more. Need some reasons to order? Throw a half-birthday party for your husband. Happy 36 and a half. Or your cat. Ah! 
Or get in touch with your vegetarian side. Hold the pepperoni. But we think free pizza's reason enough. Start earning points toward free pizza with our $5.99 mix and match deal at Domino's.com today. Rewards program is open only to U.S. residents 13 and older with a pizza profile account. Only one order per day earns points. Complete details at Domino's.com slash rewards. You must select this limited time offer. Prices, participation, and charges may vary. Know what's going on with your favorite artists, bands, and celebs. Sign up today to get the Radio.com daily newsletter, which covers all your breaking music and entertainment news. Go to Radio.com slash newsletter to get updates directly to your inbox. That's Radio.com slash newsletter. You're listening to Wavemaker Conversations. Before my guest joins me, I just want to replay that brief Ted Kennedy clip from the beginning of the program, his take on the state of the Senate. People sort of listened to each other and they took the action on that. That is non-existent today. 95% of that thing is done by staff. And people come, so I call parachuting into the Senate on Tuesdays, yes. listen to the lunch discussion, go back to their office and uh, see people because they're so far behind. They're out the door for fundraisers every night, Tuesday, Wednesday. They want to be out of there Thursday night. We don't have serious votes on Friday. If we have a vote, it's 9.30 in the morning with no debate. You lose the whole kind of essence about what the Senate is, about your involvement in it, your relationship with people, and what the purpose is, which is the exchange of ideas. Welcome to Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. And how can you not be insanely curious about Ted Kennedy uh, joining us to, to really fill us in on the backstory of what has turned out to be a major oral history project is Barbara Perry, University of Virginia's Miller Center for Presidential Studies. Is that the formal title? It is. The Institute of Presidential Studies. Barbara, how many, first of all, give us a little backstory. There's a reason we started with the sound of Ted Kennedy that you just heard, because it has to do with something that whether you're into politics or not is absolutely critical uh, if you want to thrive in this world, and that is the ability to relate to other people. And we just heard Ted Kennedy talking, and this is 10 years ago when he was recording this oral history project, talking about how even 10 years ago, there was a lot less relating and a lot more really distraction, people going out and having to spend more time raising money and less time actually interacting with other senators and doing the business of the Senate. So, Barbara Perry, your, your first reaction to that little piece of sound that we ran, and then I want you to give us the whole backstory of this oral history project as well. My initial reaction to this comment by Senator Kennedy is that it is vintage Ted Kennedy. And he talks about the essence of the United States Senate in that clip. This is really the essence of Ted Kennedy, and that is that he came from a gregarious political family. Uh, his grandfather, John F. Fitzgerald, for whom the future president was named, uh, was known by the nickname Honey Fitz, was a classic Irish Paul in Boston, served in the United States Congress in the 1890s, but was most famous for having served as the mayor of Boston. And young Ted Kennedy, as a, a young prep school boy, used to go every Sunday to have lunch, Sunday lunch, with his grandpa Fitzgerald down in Boston. And he learned the the political family business uh, at the elbow of Honey Fitz, and he learned how to relate to people because Honey Fitz would walk around the restaurant they were eating in, he'd walk around the streets of Boston, he knew everyone, or even if he didn't, he never met a stranger, and he'd go up to them and he'd start speaking. And that was part and parcel of the personal 
politics of Ted Kennedy. And, and by, by the way, that uh, I saw that nickname, Honey Fitz. I had never known that that was his grandfather. Where did the honey come from? He had such a sweet voice, uh, such a mellifluous voice. His, famously, his theme song was Sweet Adeline. And at every opportunity, uh, Honey Fitz would break into song. Uh, his daughter, Rose Kennedy, the matriarch of the Kennedy family and the mother of Edward Kennedy, um, about whom I had the privilege of, of writing a biography recently, uh, she learned to play that on the piano. So even into the 1960s, when she would go on television campaigning for uh, Senator Kennedy or Ted Kennedy running for the Senate for the first time in 1962, she'd sit down in front of the camera and play out Sweet Adeline. And in fact, Ted Kennedy was famous for breaking into song as well, whether it was uh, kind of an old sentimental tune like that, or he'd go down to Texas and he'd break into Spanish tunes. Uh, so he was really the essence of an, of an old-time politician. Uh, I, I loved the political novel when I was growing up, uh, The Last Hurrah, uh, which was about uh, an opponent of Honey Fitz's in real life, James Michael Curley. Uh, who was a very colorful Boston Paul, Irish Paul. Uh, and there was also a great film made about it. Uh, the last hurrah was Spencer Tracy. But it, it's, a, it's a time in our nation's history and politics that has passed when, when politics was more personal, when politics was uh, on the street corner and politicians giving out Thanksgiving and Christmas turkeys uh, to the poor. Uh, and we don't see so much of that anymore, for good or ill. Uh, not all of that was good. James Michael Curley served time in prison for political corruption. Uh, there was even some corruption attached to Honey Fitz Fitzgerald. Uh, so it didn't mean that it was all perfect or clean, uh, but it was just different. And Ted Kennedy was pointing out that he thought that the essence of the Senate was the personal relationships in helping to craft legislation and trying to find common ground when possible, not that he couldn't be partisan when, when he felt the need. Uh, but he was bemoaning in 2004 and five as he began this process of recording his oral history, he was bemoaning the loss of that. We should also remember that this project started uh, just a few years after the acrimonious 2000 presidential election. Mm -hmm. And and just you know, not to get too obsessed with the grandfather, but uh, you know, we've we've all seen you know, everybody's uh, everybody is influenced by different people. Sometimes it's the parents who have that pivotal impact. Sometimes it's a grandparent. Sometimes sometimes it's it's just a a, a serendipitous encounter. Uh, just to give you a little example, I was I was just uh, speaking with on a, in a totally different field, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, my former colleague at CNN, and I said, "How did you get into medicine?" And he said, "He wasn't an outstanding student in in, in uh, middle school all the way into early high school, and something happened in the junior his junior year of high school. His grandfather, his maternal grandfather, who, whom he was very close to, had a stroke." went to the hospital, needed surgery. Sanjay visited him in the hospital every week, or every day, I should say, and saw all these amazing doctors with one goal, helping an individual get better. And he said, that's what did it for him. And so we all have these influences, and they come at different times. So I'm struck in this oral history, again, early in the oral history uh, that Ted Kennedy is doing here, I guess he was talking to his brother, and you have to remind me whether uh, uh, John F. Kennedy was president yet, but, but apparently Ted Kennedy was interested in sort of becoming an expert in the Cold War because that was the big issue at the time. And he thought, well, this will be good for me. I'll become an expert in the issue. And 
John F. Kennedy advises him, look, go up to Boston, get to know the people. You know, not that the issues weren't important, but really get to know the people if you want a future in politics. Well, this is so true. And if if I can just put a little bit of a personal anecdote into how I became interested in politics and political history in the Kennedy family, when I was four, my mother took me to see John F. Kennedy then a senator himself, uh, running for president one month before he would be elected president of the United States. And my mother, who was a homemaker and raising three baby boomer children, was not a political historian by any means, but she was interested in American history and politics, and we're Catholic. And she was drawn to this young candidate, 43-year-old John F. Kennedy, her age cohort, her religion. And she piled us all in the car and drove us to downtown Louisville until she passed away. She'd say to me, don't you remember we got there early? And, and stood right at the podium, and your brother shook his hand. I'd say, Mother, I was four. I can remember the confetti in the crowds. But I would tease her forevermore that she turned me into a political scientist at the age of four. So who knows, uh, for the parents out there and grandparents, uh, what kind of experience uh, will have a lasting effect uh, on a child and that child's development and that child's interest in a particular career. It was certainly the case for, for Ted Kennedy. Uh, he would say about his parents that his mother was uh, the family's greatest teacher. And, of course, Teddy was the youngest of nine children. The, their mother, Rose, was their greatest teacher. And their father, Joe Kennedy Sr., was their biggest fan uh, and their biggest inspiration. Uh, so it, it, there's no doubt that, that both of those parents had a tremendous impact on all nine of the children. But it is, I think, very heartwarming to know that in Teddy's case, that his grandfather, Fitzgerald, I think in some ways had more of an impact on him than any of the other four brothers, uh, all of whom were uh, destined, it seemed, to, to go into politics eventually. But here, the youngest, Teddy, who was uh, shipped off to boarding school uh, at, a, at a very young age, at age eight, uh, and was very lonely and, and bullied uh, in prep school. And so when he came to a prep school that was near Boston, it was his delight to go and have lunch every Sunday uh, with Grandpa Fitzgerald. And so forevermore, Teddy would be grateful to him for teaching him politics uh, and teaching him how to relate to people. And I think Teddy of the four brothers was the most outgoing, the most gregarious, perhaps as the youngest child uh, he had been doted on. And uh, he was sort of the, the family foil. And, and I think he kind of soaked up that that position and, and then turned that outward in terms of having a very effervescent personality. He did, of course, rely on his two older brothers, Jack and Bobby. He, he lost his oldest brother, the oldest child of the nine in the family, Joseph Jr., uh, was killed in World War II in 1944. A horrendous beginning of a whole series of tragedies that we know befell the Kennedy family. Uh, particularly the brothers in the family. Uh, three of the four gave their lives in public service. Uh, so after Joe's passing, uh, Jack served then as a mentor. In fact, he was uh, Teddy Kennedy's godfather. Uh, he asked if he asked his mother, writing from prep school, uh, knowing that she was due to deliver a baby soon, and he said, could I be the baby's godfather? He knew that his older brother, Joe, uh, had been the godfather to the second to the last child, Jean, uh, in the family. And so Jack asked if he could be the godfather to what would become Teddy Kennedy. 
And uh, Rose said yes. And so Jack became a sort of a personal and, and political mentor to the youngest brother in the family. And indeed, he helped him to get started in his career uh, in politics by saying in the early 1960s, as Jack was in the White House, saying to Teddy, don't spend so much time focusing at this point on world affairs. If you think you're going to run for office at some point, go back home, go back to our roots, go back to Boston. And then they, the family set Teddy up with a, a man named Frank Morrissey, uh, who ended up having a very colorful political career of his own, but he had been uh, a, a political mentor as a grassroots mentor, I would call him, uh, because by this time, by the early 60s, Honey Fitz had passed on. Uh, he had passed on in the 1950s. So Frank Morrissey was assigned to Teddy to take him around Boston and to take him around Massachusetts. And the Kennedys were always very interested in, in outreach uh, for their political careers, and uh, their mother would do this particularly. She would go abroad, she would take photographs, she would take videos, and then she'd come back home and she would start giving talks to women's uh, civic groups and Catholic women's civic groups, and uh, she would encourage her sons to do the same. And they did this for Teddy. And so this was how he was groomed in the early 1960s to make the run, as he did, as soon as he turned uh, 30 and was eligible for the U.S. Senate, he then ran for what had been Jack's Senate seat uh, in a special election in 1962. And, and you talk about that, that uh, you know, getting back to Boston instead of you know, getting his head into the global issues. Uh, so I'm going to play this just a very brief clip, and it shows you how this is, because this is him now talking again in your Miller Center Oral History Project in uh, uh, 2005, relaying even in in those later years, you know, how much he loved the history, uh, the personal and the grander history of Boston uh, and how much it inspired him, especially when he looked out his window in Boston and in, in his office there. So just I'm just going to play this brief clip from your oral history project. I can look out my window next to my desk and see where my grandfather was born on Ferry Street or my Mother was born in Garden Court Street, where my, my father was born in Meridian Street in mm. East Boston. And I can also see the Old North Church. I can see St. Stephen's Church, the Bunker Hill Monument, the Constitution. And if you lean out a little bit and look to the right, you can see Faneuil Hall as well. I mean, this is the whole birthplace of, Amer of America on this end. Yeah. And down the sweep of the harbor, I can see the building where eight of my grandparents came in in 1848 yeah. out of one window, which is, a, yeah. I mean, absolutely, uh, absolutely unique and special and uh, inspiring location. That clip of, of Teddy talking about gazing out the window of his office uh, in the U.S. Federal Building in Boston, I think really summarizes uh, his approach to his family and his country. Because if you note in the beginning of the clip, he is looking out and seeing the birthplaces of his mother and his grandfather and his father's father, uh, Patrick Joseph Kennedy. And then he quickly turns to 
the, the civic shrines of our nation, uh, the USS Constitution, the, the ship, Faneuil Hall, uh, a, a cradle of American democracy in Boston, Boston Harbor, uh, where the waves of immigrants, including all four uh, of his ancestors, uh, came from Ireland in the 1840s in the midst of the uh, potato famine. And so here is Teddy Kennedy, only three generations removed from that abject poverty, uh, the peat bogs of Ireland. Uh, but yet he's looking out from his post as a senior U.S. senator from the U.S. Federal, federal Building, which, by the way, in Boston is named for his brother, President John F. Kennedy. Uh, it, it really is, I think, not only the essence of how he views his family, how he views American history, but uh, what, what went into the making of the man, Senator Edward Kennedy. So now what went into making him? You know, I was struck because I started reading the transcripts raw there's no way I could finish them in the, since you released them a few days ago. But I, I got totally hooked on one of the very first stories and I guess the, maybe the very first interview he told. And he started by talking before his days of politics, his first days as an assistant district attorney, as a prosecutor in Boston. So he was one of the junior guys. And I'm just going to read a little bit from the transcript, and then I want you to just bounce off that and, and tell me what comes to mind. But it's a great story that I think everybody should share, especially parents with their kids, but, but lawyers should share this one. He says, the third day I was in office, I tried my first case. I had studied the evidence hard, and I had read all of Clarence Darrow's final arguments, and I had to change them since I was prosecuting, but he had some wonderful passages in there. So anyway, Ted Kennedy's ready to try this case, and he thinks, he says, so I went in to try this case, and they handed the folder to the public defender as they walked into the trial, and I thought, this poor fellow doesn't have a chance. And what was the offense? So now, just summarizing it, it was a guy who was drunk, smashed into a car in Kenmore Square. I don't, sounds like he didn't hurt anybody, but he smashed into the car, and here's Kennedy's account. He had gone to the Red Sox game when they played the Yankees. And after the Red Sox won the doubleheader, he went to the little brown jug and had 26 drinks. I had his bar bill and the waitress. And then he drove into Kenmore Square and banged into this car. And when he fell out of his car, he was glassy-eyed and unsteady on his feet, enough to convict anyone. I had the policeman who arrested him. They never put the defense, never put any witness on. They never made any representation. So the final argument came, and this fellow stood up, the defense attorney, who had gotten the information right at the last minute, and said, Sullivan over here has been working since he was 12 years old. And then Kennedy talks, in, and, and I was wondering, what does this have to do with it? And he, the defense attorney, looked up at me a little bit, and then the jury all looked at me. And then he said, his principal crime today is that he cheered for the Boston Red Sox. And Kennedy continues, I saw the jury smile, all of them smile. It was just a shame that he cheered for them. And with his great, great enthusiasm, perhaps he had one too many, said the attorney. I think most of us can understand that when the Red Sox win. And then Kennedy keeps on going. I thought, oh, my God, what does this have to do with anything, he said. 
And then the attorney continues, he's a carpenter, and if he's convicted today, he will lose his automobile license. He needs the automobile license in order to go to job, from job to job. If he loses his automobile license, then he's going to be on welfare. And he has seven children. It's going to cost the taxpayers of Suffolk County $1,500 a month to support him if he's convicted. Anyway, long and short of it is the guy, 26 minutes, the guy is found not guilty. Kennedy then says, I had a similar case the next day. I didn't know it, but what was happening was they never convicted anyone for driving under the influence in Boston for 10 years. Now they do, but then they didn't. And so what Kennedy learned through experience and only through experience was they gave these DUI cases to the most junior prosecutors because they know you didn't have a chance to win it. And again, you know, what a lesson for a young guy who grew up in a privileged family, but until you get in the game, you just don't know. Well, again, the, the very essence of Ted Kennedy on a host of levels. And to, to think that, first of all, he's just a, a young assistant DA fresh out of the University of Virginia Law School, uh, really wanting to get into politics in the worst way, but having his brother say he really should go back and, and practice law, uh, but at least in the public realm as a prosecutor and get to know the people. But what a lesson that he learned in a host of ways. And one was how to reach the people, again, tying back to Honey Fitz. Yes, Teddy had seen his grandfather reach out to the public, but here he saw it in a very personal way. He saw a, a public defender he thought had no chance, but he saw how that person reached an audience, reached the jury, by being down to earth and talking about the things that people cared about in Boston, like the Red Sox. But I also wonder what a young Edward Kennedy was thinking at the time in the early 60s when this story took place, but also what he was thinking about some 40 years later when he was relating this story, uh, because the family has had, as many people know, famously has had addiction issues. Uh, Teddy Kennedy, even alcohol aside, was often known in the Charlottesville area while he was a UVA law student uh, for getting speeding tickets. Uh, he would drive his car too fast around the uh, the hollows and the uh, the valleys of, of the Blue Ridge here in, in uh, Jefferson Land. And so he had been through this himself. Um, again, alcohol would play a prominent role in his life until uh, he met his second wife, uh, Vicki Reggie Kennedy, uh, who really put him on the straight and narrow and, and in most people's views, uh, saved his life and gave him a very happy life uh, for the last 20 years or so of it. Uh, but what must he have been thinking uh, as the son of privilege, uh, as the youngest son who, when his brothers would get in trouble with scrapes such as this, uh, what they would often come to young Teddy uh, as he was a little boy, and they'd say, here's what happened, go tell dad, because they knew their dad wouldn't get mad at a little boy. Is that uh, right? So he had played a very interesting role in that family, and the family, because it was of privilege, had um, a number of fixers in the family, and for years it was the patriarch, Joe Kennedy Sr. Uh, so once when young Teddy was traveling about Europe, he had a car wreck, and in the papers of Joe Kennedy and the papers of others, you can find... Uh, paragraphs and paragraphs about how Joe Kennedy was fixing that situation for Teddy by taking care of the insurance and that kind of thing. Um, I think that is a parental uh, lesson to learn. It's a lesson that all children should learn, particularly parents in this helicopter age, uh, that sometimes it's important for 
young people to feel the consequences of their actions. Uh, and of course, Senator Kennedy was right to say in the recent years in which he was speaking, uh, we have, thank goodness, zero tolerance for drunk driving and thank goodness for mothers against drunk driving um, that caused that kind of legislation to be passed. Well, and let me just stop right there because actually in the coming weeks, I'm, I'm doing a series on Wavemaker Conversations about this relatively new phenomenon called overparenting. And, and indeed, while... I mean, the, the examples you just gave me of the, you know, the fixers in the family, in a sense, it's a surrogate overparenting in some ways. And um, uh, a woman at Stanford, actually the, the former dean of freshmen at Stanford University, uh, Julie Lithcott-Hames, has just written a book called How to Raise an Adult. And it has a lot to do with letting kids fail, to pay for their mistakes. That's how they learn. That's how they become independent. And I wonder, as you listened to and and read the entire oral history as conveyed by Ted Kennedy, um, you know, did you see signs of somebody who wasn't fully an adult? I mean, you talk about, you know, his second wife and the impact she had, but in terms of, you know, really fully taking responsibility of his life, what ultimately was the tipping the positive tipping point for him and did you see an evolution as he told the stories from his younger days till his older days i think he would readily have admitted and again people on the outside certainly saw it um that it it was getting out of his first marriage uh and he certainly as bill clinton admitted in his marriage had caused pain uh, Senator Kennedy had certainly caused pain in his first marriage uh, with Joan Bennett. Um, she had come from a, a family that had addiction issues involving alcohol. She has been very public about uh, her issues involving alcohol. Uh, so there was a, a, a very unhealthy and healthful dynamic uh, in his first marriage. Uh, and again, the family has had um, long-known uh, addiction issues with both drugs and alcohol. Um, it could be something that, that is related to the Irish roots, for example. Um, but in any event, I, I, I think the, the sad part was that uh, as young people, uh, and certainly in the senator's case as a young person, um, there were too often people around the family, either within the family or without, who were ready to smooth out those edges. Uh, and then the William Kennedy Smith uh, rape case and rape trial in Palm Beach um, in the early 1990s, uh, in which the senator had been involved by going out on, on all nights of nights on the night of Good Friday, the holiest of nights in the Catholic Church, had gone out bar hopping um, with his son and, and nephew. And uh, this woman then had, had claimed that she had been uh, sexually assaulted uh, by William Kennedy Smith back at the Kennedy compound at Palm Beach. And so there was the senator having to come forward uh, and testify in that trial about having gone out bar hopping um, and perhaps drinking to excess uh, with young people, his son and his, his nephew on that night. Uh, then he meets uh, Vicki Reggie. By this time, he's divorced a little over 10 years, uh, and she really does put him on the straight and narrow. It is a love match. Uh, she's a brilliant woman dedicated to the law and public service and dedicated to him. And he therefore speaks uh, at Harvard in the early 1990s as he's coming up for a reelection campaign 
um, against Mitt Romney, we should add, uh, certainly someone who followed from his Mormon faith the straight and narrow path presumably all of his life. Um, so Ted Kennedy at Harvard gives a, a very famous speech in which he admits uh, to his weaknesses and to uh, the problems he has had in his life. Uh, and everyone knows, of course, about Chappaquiddick as well. And so he uh, cleanses himself, if you will, with this public statement uh, and is reelected and goes on to be reelected re several more times to the Senate, marries Vicki Kennedy in the early 1990s, and uh, she assures that he follows the straight and narrow path for the rest of his life. That's fascinating. And did, did, by the way, did he, you know, to use your term, cleanse himself in this uh, oral history project, or did he just leave it to what he had said at Harvard? He was very open and honest in this oral history. Uh, he had become friends eventually with uh, Jim Sterling Young, James Sterling Young, the professor from the Miller Center who ran this program to uh, until his death in 2013. Uh, he didn't know Jim at all when they began, but Jim was a very uh, brilliant, charismatic uh, professor from Georgia uh, originally. And so you would have thought the two men would have had very little in common. Um, Jim was this very courtly Southern gentleman. And here was Ted Kennedy, the uh, the Irish American from Boston, uh, seemingly very gregarious, indeed, uh, a, a seemingly a, a gregarious and extroverted uh, Irish American politician. But uh, his wife Vicky points out that in private he was very private and uh, was very private about his private life, uh, and grew up in a generation that tended to be more so that way than generations after. And his mother, I, I describe as a Victorian. Um, so she was very much uh, closed about her feelings, and the family itself had tried to keep its feelings under wrap, and they were told by their dad, Kennedys don't cry. Uh, so you would be hard-pressed to find video footage of the family going through all these horrible tragedies in public in the glare of the spotlight, uh, find them ever breaking down. Uh, the closest you would get would be Ted Kennedy giving the eulogy for his brother Bobby in 1968 with a little bit of a quaver in his voice uh, in delivering the eulogy at St. Patrick's Cathedral. But um, none of this breaking down in public, none of this what we would have people now, you would have gone on Oprah and confessed everything and put everything on Twitter and all sorts of self Selfies. The family was not that way. For being very public, uh, they were really closed uh, about the, the private parts of their life, and understandably so for some of the things that were engaged in. Let me stop you there for a second, because you, who was it who said, basically, this family doesn't cry? Who, who was the uh, Joe person? Kennedy Sr., the patriarch of the family, said Kennedys don't cry. So let me ask you this, because, because this is, is and, I've, and I've interviewed psychologists about this, uh, recently interviewed uh, the wonderful psychiatrist Irvin Yalom about this, talking about how, uh, and everybody will tell you, one of the keys to mental health is having good friends. And the idea that, you know, the only way to have truly close friendships is to be very transparent. And so here we have, it's, it's, it's a bit of a conflict, and I'm trying to get my arms around it. Here we have a guy who was so great at building relationships, and yet if you've got to hold back your feelings and you can't cry, not that people cry with their friends necessarily, but, but there seems to be a holding back there. And yet still he was masterful at creating relationships, not just with fellow Democrats, but with Republicans. So how was that possible? Because I think he had a genuineness about him that was 
available to the public, which was why he was so successful as a campaigner and uh, a winner every six years of, of his Senate reelections. And then one of his friends, he certainly uh, was genuine with them and certainly um, in some cases caroused with them, um, but in later years was just uh, a, a good and warm friend and mostly by reaching out to them in the sense that everyone who served with Ted Kennedy, uh, every staffer will say if anything had gone wrong in the fa- in their families, they had had a tragedy or an illness or a, a, a death in the family, Ted Kennedy would be the first one there to support them and the first one to write a lovely uh, note to them. So in some ways, he was always giving and reaching out, um, but perhaps because of the more Victorian household in which he grew up, was rather closed to releasing his own feelings. And no doubt the bottling up of that, and he's very open about this in his memoir, True Compass, which was published uh, just uh, at the time of his death. So he's really spent the last year of his life once he had received his uh, fatal cancer diagnosis uh, writing this memoir, True Compass, which in part, I should add, was based on the oral histories at that time. So if people are looking for another way to access the oral histories, that's a really good way as well. Um, but I would say that in in doing that, he talks very openly about once he was left behind as the final brother after Bobby's assassination, he says he would sometimes just go walk on the beach by himself to try to get out his sadness. He would take these long, lonely sailing trips from Hyannis up to Maine at night uh, and perhaps let his hair down and let his emotions out there. But he said he didn't want to do that in front of his parents specifically because he felt like if he now, as the patriarch of the family by 1968, his dad would live only one more year and had been felled by a stroke, which rendered him uh, mute in the early 1960s at the end of 1961. Teddy said, I I didn't want to let down and and cry or or be upset in front of my parents because I felt like I'd be letting them down and then then they would fall into weepiness. And so he kept, he said, he kept all those emotions bottled up. Wow. you know, I, I want to. St- I, st- I still get obsessed with the earlier days, and so I'm looking at an, another passage here again from one of the first transcripts. And you know, while there were, you know, some of these, you know, enabling, you know, negative influences in his life, whether it had to do with alcohol or other things, you know, there was also this incredibly positive support network. So I'm looking at something. This is at, at a time when I, I, I believe you'll tell me John F. Kennedy was president, and. Uh, uh, you know, he had, as you said, urged his brother to go out, get to know the people. And so, so, and the historian, Professor Young, asks him in this oral history, so it was a very good opportunity. What did you talk about? And Kennedy says, and here's the quote, well, in the beginning, I talked for about 40 minutes about my trip to Africa. I had some slides from the time just before and after the election. My brother called me one time and said, uh, I hear you're talking for a very long time. <laughs> How long do you talk? I said, 40 minutes. He said, oh, boy, I wish I could do a good impression of JFK, but he said, if I could do this, the State of the Union, no, I won't, I won't try it. He said, if I could do the State of the Union in 23 minutes, you can shorten up Africa and do it in 25. Just talk for 20 minutes and answer a couple of questions. You don't have to do more than that. And I, this is Ted Kennedy speaking, I said, I just can't get this speech down. There's just no way of squeezing that down. It's just too much information. 
And then he starts going into all the information he conveyed. I mean, he was truly, I call my, I call my podcast a podcast for the insanely curious. When you start reading all the information he can, had to convey about Africa in 45 minutes, this is a guy who, who really is a, an insanely curious guy. That is absolutely true. And again, everyone um, from his wife, Vicki Reggie Kennedy, to his colleagues, Senator Alan Simpson, Senator Chris Dodd, who've been um, very much in, involved in the release of this oral history, uh, they all talk about, uh, as staff, by the way, is, there, there are 1,100 Kennedy staff alums in the United States. Uh, in other words, uh, 1,100 people worked at one time or another during his almost 50 years in the Senate with him, and, and all senators say he had the best staff on Capitol Hill. Uh, and they all say, all testify uh, to his curiosity that every night he would take home a bulging briefcase with memos that he had asked them to write about all of the different issues uh, in which they were involved and, and about which he cared. And I think that came from both his father and his mother. They, they were very curious people. Um, his father had had the good fortune to go to Harvard, uh, was not a great student, but certainly was an astute and shrewd businessman, was not a great politician was not a great ambassador uh, to the UK from the US right before World War II. Um, but their mother, uh, who had been, I think, very much uh, subdued by Catholic education uh, in, again, a much more Victorian age and wasn't given the opportunity by her father, Honey Fitz, to go to Wellesley, which was her great dream. Uh, rather, he sent her to a Prussian convent uh, for higher education for a year or two. But she read widely throughout her life and was uh, multilingual. And, and she passed that on, again, as, as Ted Kennedy would say of her in later years, she was their greatest teacher. Uh, and so he was, in, I mean, he was intensely curious from the time he was a little child and a great reader. Uh, so the fact, though, that he had his brother Jack, in, imagine being mentored by your, your big older brother whom you adore, who just happens to be president of the United States, as you are beginning your career and gives you advice, uh, sometimes unsolicited, but well-meaning. And this was the perfect advice that he needed. He was talking too long. Hmm. And, you know, so speaking about Jack Kennedy now, and, you know, we know about uh, his famous State of the Union address and, and how it inspired so many people. So I'm, I'm just going to play a little clip uh, from Ted Kennedy. It's, uh, it's, it's on your site, millercenter.org uh, slash riding the tiger. Uh, by the way, you want to tell us where that term riding the tiger comes from? Yes, this is from Harry Truman, President Harry Truman, who said being president is like riding the tiger. Uh, I'm I, ah, here it is on your website. I discovered that being a president is like riding a tiger. A man has to keep on riding or be swallowed. That's, boy, that is a metaphor that applies to all of us in so many situations. It does. And throughout most of our lives, we're just hanging on, <laughs> but certainly for presidents, inundated with crisis one after the other, uh, and particularly in this day and age, uh, ready to be swallowed up if, if they don't hold on uh, by uh, a howling media sometimes or a, ho a howling electorate or both. And so let's talk about riding the tiger for a second, because so I remember when I was in college, Vassar College in the late 70s and graduated in 81. And, uh, the, you know, these were the days when, and then the rise of Ronald Reagan, and those were the days when, if you were a Republican, it didn't matter who the other candidate was on the Democratic side. You ran against Ted Kennedy. You remember those days? Oh, yes. It was, it was you were running against, 
if 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 you you know if you were conservative, you know the, the a conservative candidate, you would say, to, uh, do you America want to elect a Ted? Kennedy liberal. So again, it didn't matter who the candidate was. It didn't matter what the race was. And so you talk about riding the tiger. A man has to keep on riding or be swallowed. How did Ted Kennedy, and it, uh, tell me specifically from, from, the, from the oral history project, did he address how he succeeded in not getting swallowed when he was you know, sort of the icon for the despised liberal. I think he relished it. It's easy to keep on riding when you're really enjoying riding the tiger. It, it's it, for to someone like Harry Truman, um, I'm not sure he enjoyed it. Uh, there are lots of letters that he wrote home to his bride, Bess Truman, uh, who didn't like Washington and spent every moment she could back in their uh, hometown of Independence, Missouri. Um, and Harry would write to her and say, oh, Bess, I, I just feel so low and I miss you so much and this is so difficult. And, of course, Harry Truman leaves office in 1953 uh, with what then were unprecedentedly low approval ratings. He'd be surpassed only by Richard Nixon uh, at the height of the Watergate scandal and his resignation from office. But uh, Harry Truman didn't relish uh, the job of president, or I'm not sure even relish politics, though he could certainly get out on the stump and give him hell, as, as we know. Uh, but Ted Kennedy, I think, relished every opportunity. And, and what's fascinating about him to me, given his politician status and given his willingness to reach out to people on the other side of the aisle, he relished both being a partisan and being a nonpartisan. And that's highly unusual. And I would suggest it's uh, perhaps not even existent anymore in any politician uh, so that he could be the politician who was the partisan. And I'll give you his speech on the floor of the Senate when Ronald Reagan nominated Robert Bork for the so-called swing seat on the Supreme Court. Uh, a, a highly partisan ideological statement that Ted Kennedy made. And that's what used to be the burr under the saddle of the Republicans and conservative Republicans. So he would be the whipping boy and the fundraiser, uh, in effect, for the Republicans. But at the same time, Ted Kennedy, uh, and this was again mentioned by Senator Alan Simpson at the rollout of this oral history on Capitol Hill this week, Alan Simpson and, and Chris Dodd, a Democrat and a, a dear friend of the senator, would both say he'd settle for a, a half a loaf or a quarter loaf or an eighth of a loaf if that's all he could agree on with you on the other side of the aisle. Now, this would sometimes very much displease members of his own party uh, who would want to stake out that claim in a partisan way and say, no, no, you know, let's don't compromise. But he wanted to get something done. And this is the story that he tells over and over again in the oral history, that he'd rather get something done than get nothing done for the sake of partisanship or ideology. And so, you know, talking about on that issue of, again, coming back to riding the tiger, though, and uh, thriving on this challenge and almost being under siege, uh, there's a, in a totally unrelated but in a sense connected uh, way. There, there's a psychologist at Stanford who I've uh, interviewed on my podcast and has had a big impact on, on in the world of education and parenting and child development. Her name is Carol Dweck, and she wrote a book called Mindset, and she found that there are you know, pretty early on, you can find kids, and, and, and we're all on this spectrum between what she calls a fixed mindset, and what she means by that is people who believe you're either smart or you're not. 
in politics that would translate into either you're a good politician or you're not, or you're a good leader or you're not, versus a growth mindset, meaning the more you practice, the better you'll get. And and Carol Dweck herself, just to, to, to take a little detour, had a very interesting situation where she had an extremely high IQ and she was in a, one of her earlier classes where the teacher sat the kids, this was 40, 50 years ago or more, according to their IQ. And I asked her, what seat was she in? She said, first row, first seat. And I said, what impact did that have on you? And she said, it made me very afraid to take on challenges. It made me very afraid of failure because if I took on a challenge and I failed, it might say to the world and to me that maybe that IQ test is wrong. Maybe I really don't have it. So she has spent her life trying to encourage this, what she calls this growth mindset. It sounds like Ted Kennedy had the growth mindset. And I'm going to play you just a a little excerpt. Serendipitously, I just noticed this one uh, from your oral history project at the University of Virginia, the Miller Center, about it's called Ted Kennedy and Challenging People. So I just want you to hear this and then just bounce off it in any way you like. Hold on. Here we go. People are confused and they're seeing where our respect around the world having dropped and less sure about whether we are the rising tide of power or whether it's going to go with China, India, feeling restless about where they're going to end up with their health, their jobs, their all the kind of thing, their family, their kids. People are less less involved and less participating in it. And there's, a, I think, a frustration that's out there. And I think an awful lot of people come on in and pick up and play on that kind of atmosphere and are doing it very, very successfully. It's, a, it's an unchallenged nation at this time. And our tradition, at least in terms of the appeal of President Kennedy and the rest, was to challenge people. It wasn't a set of promises, a set of challenges, and we all do better. <clears throat> and that's the sort of politics that I believe in, and I think that uh, the country responds to is a very important element in terms of American uh, society and in terms of all of us as individuals. So, so we all do better when we're challenged, when, when, we're, when we receive challenges and not promises. So what does that trigger both in the Kennedy oral history and, and, and your experience with uh, the, the histories of other presidents and political leaders? Well, I think that th- given that Ted Kennedy, again, being mentored in part by his brother and inspired by his brother, but also going back to his parents and his grandparents, that the family had met the challenge of coming with nothing as poor immigrants from Ireland in the 1840s and facing abject poverty in this country as well as discrimination against their nationality and against their religion. And so they, generation by generation, could pass on to each generation, we rose above it. We met the challenge. So within their own family, they could say personally they had met the challenge. Then, by the time Teddy comes along as the last child of Joe and Rose Kennedy in 1932, and the family is already very wealthy from Joe Kennedy's astute business practices on Wall Street before it was regulated, uh, and out in Hollywood uh, in the 1920s, um, multimillionaire. And so now Teddy faces the challenge of not becoming a dissolute playboy, which his mother would always say, to, particularly all the boys, 
uh, you know, look, you could spend the rest of your lives sitting around a pool, lounging around the pool, being on the tennis court and on the golf course. Uh, and his dad would say, um, I'm not going to spend any time with you if you do that. I want you to make something of yourself. And so then the parents challenge them to go beyond the life of ease that they could have. I mean, some would say uh, they continued in some instances uh, living some aspects of a playboy life, but that was in their personal life, in their public lives. They were out challenging themselves. And then when you get President Kennedy to come along and challenge an entire generation uh, with his famous ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country in his inaugural address, that inspires Senator Edward Kennedy for the rest of his life. And then he turns around to inspire those coming up in his family, the hundreds, almost hundreds of his nieces and nephews, uh, many of whom have gone on to, to public life. And just the other evening um, at, at a dinner as we were celebrating uh, this coming out of the oral history was his, uh, his great nephew, uh, Joe Kennedy III, who's a congressman from Massachusetts, following in the family footsteps. Senator Kennedy's niece, Caroline Kennedy, ambassador to Japan. Uh, many of them, the Shrivers, involved in uh, Special Olympics and Best Buddies and, and helping those with disabilities. So the family continues to challenge itself uh, to be involved in public service or to use what some people call soft power uh, these days. And I think we want to add an, an one more element to this mix for Senator Kennedy that he talks about in the oral history, and that is his eternal optimism. And so going back to riding the tiger, in it, first of all, he enjoyed it. He relished riding the tiger, even though he was never president, but he had to ride his own tiger on Capitol Hill. Uh, and he enjoyed it. He relished it. But he had an unshakable optimism, despite all of the family tragedies and the personal tragedies and his own weaknesses, and despite the defeats that he had, uh, including losing the Democratic presidential nomination to Jimmy Carter in 1980. And that optimism, according to the senator in his oral history, goes to his religion and his religious faith. And he cites uh, the Gospel of St. Matthew, uh, chapter 25, uh, about God's challenge to us to feed the hungry and to clothe the naked and to shelter the homeless and to uh, visit the sick and the infirm and the incarcerated. And that was his challenge. We all know what his number one, number one legislative issue had always been, which was universal health care. And so I'm just going to play this brief clip and then ask you about because he talks about it in this oral history project, and people can read about it, how, how furious he was with the Clintons and the Clinton presidency for what he thought was blowing an opportunity to get universal health care. But let me just uh, play you this brief excerpt that's on your website. I mean, I use the example of the parents that hear a child cry in the night, wonder whether they are $485 sick, because that's what it costs to go to an emergency room. And they, you know, listen to the child. Is the child getting better or sicker? Where do the child, you know, goes to, finally goes to sleep and wonder whether the child is going to be worse in the morning because they can't afford the 500 or they take that $500 that they put aside to educate their kids and it's gone. Sure. And that is what's happening all across the country. Uh, that's an inc incredible phrase and the numbers have probably escalated, but to hear a child, for a parent to hear a child cry in the night and wonder whether they are, and uh, I'm always going to remember this phrase, to wonder whether your child is $485 sick. Well, he, he knew this particularly from personal experience and another horrible tragedy that befell the family 
uh, when his son, Teddy Jr., uh, as a young boy, was diagnosed with bone cancer and had to have uh, his leg amputated uh, and go through uh, two years of uh, horrendous chemotherapy. Uh, at, and t- Senator Kennedy was at his son's side throughout in the hospital with him when he would go through these uh, chemotherapy treatments. And the senator would see the other parents uh, in, in these wings of the hospital and know that he was so fortunate that by having good health insurance uh, in the Senate, but also through his family's wealth, could afford any treatment to keep his son alive. And indeed, his son is now serving in the state Senate of Connecticut. But he also knew that there were families there who would go through NIH experimental treatments, but when those would end, could not pick up the tab for continuing the treatment and maybe lost their children to cancer. Barbara Perry, uh, University of Virginia Miller Center, uh, on this week when the uh, uh, voluminous uh, and fascinating oral history project of Ted Kennedy has been released. Uh, Thank you so much for joining me on Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. Thank you, Michael. It was my pleasure and honor. If you like what you're hearing on Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious, you can subscribe on iTunes. If you have an iPhone, look for that purple microphone icon. A lot of people don't know it's there. It's right on your screen. Touch it. Search Wavemaker. Click on the Wavemaker logo and then click subscribe. It's free. If you're on Android, you can listen on the new CBS Podcast Network. Play it at play.it slash wavemaker. And if you can't get enough of these Wavemaker stories, you can go to my website, wavemaker.me. And you can follow me on Twitter, at Michael Shoulder. To all the Wavemaker subscribers, thank you for being insanely curious. With Domino's new Piece of the Pie rewards, you earn a free medium two-topping pizza after just six online orders of $10 or more. Need some reasons to order? Throw a half-birthday party for your husband. Happy 36 and a half. Or your cat. <coughs> or get in touch with your vegetarian side. Hold the pepperoni. But we think free pizza's reason enough. Start earning points toward free pizza with our $5.99 mix and match deal at Domino's.com today. Rewards program is open only to U.S. residents 13 and older with a pizza profile account. Only one order per day earns points. Complete details at Domino's.com slash rewards. You must select this limited time offer. Prices, participation, and charges may vary.